Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. everyone, welcome to the 69th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Vesuvian Doppelganger Galib. What's the deal? I was contacted today. I guess I wasn't contacted. I was followed on Twitter today by a Brian Yang. And no! Yeah, and his handle was Yang plus some numbers. So first of all, Brian Yang, thank you for the follow. I appreciate it. Second of all, I have a severe identity crisis on my hands right now. I thought I was the BR Yang. I don't know if his existence predates mine. I, I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions right now, but me and the other Yang will work this out and figure out you know, where things stand, who came first, chicken or the egg type scenario. But yeah, I, I thought that was pretty exciting to know there's another Yang out there. Yeah, that is rad. That's kind of crazy. That's like, uh, you know, who is who is the real person? Like, are, are you the clone or is he the clone? Right. It's it's the same thing as like the Josh Joe situation with you where he may be a figment of your imagination. Nobody's really sure. Exactly. Now I'm questioning my existence. I don't know. It, it's opened a lot of questions for me. We won't spend the rest of the podcast addressing them though because there's other exciting magic things to talk about. So we should probably wrap up the exploration of the Yang situation. Yeah, I guess. But but man, we could talk about that stuff for hours. We could go That's true. Maybe, maybe next but... week we'll just focus on this situation and just skip magic for a week. Yeah, cool. I mean, we'll see how the rest of Dominaria ends up. We'll see how Hartford goes and everything. And if it's kind of boring, you know, maybe we'll just talk about existential crises and stuff. I like it. Crises? Yeah, I think it would be crises. Okay, whatever. Anyway, there was a GP last weekend in Seattle, uh, effectively my hometown. I live in Renton, so I'm like 30 minutes outside. It's mostly a good thing having a hometown GP. Like I, I didn't have it as easy as some people I knew who got to walk to the convention center from their apartment. But uh, you know, sleeping in your own bed, like that—that's just something really nice about that. Even if it did mean that I had to like get up kind of early to shuttle people back and forth to the the event site. Yeah, I've only had it once in my life. It was for GP New York. I was living in New York City, and. The GP New York was actually in New Jersey. So it was still like a 50-minute ride to the convention center. But again, the sleeping in your own bed thing doesn't happen very often with the GP. That's as close as I've ever gotten before. Yeah. I mean, it's it's happened to me a, a fair amount. But I, part of it is because I move around, you know. So I've, I've hit a bunch of different cities at different times. Yep. But yeah, no, it was, it was really good. It was a lot of fun. I got to see a bunch of people that, you know, they, they always just come out of the woodwork, you know. I told you it was going to be that kind of GP where it's just going to be loaded with people we haven't seen in forever and, and a super exciting event overall. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. And uh, I was I was four and two playing the the red black uh, Inventor's Apprentice like aggressive deck that we kind of talked about a little bit last weekend and a couple days leading up to the tournament. Matt Severa contacted me and he was like, hey, Sam told me you're playing this deck. I thought we could talk about stuff. And I finally got a hold of like John Rolfe and Nathan Smith and I talked to them. They talked to another friend of theirs, uh, Malcolm Forsyth. And there was like a pretty good crew of people playing the deck. And I believe four of them finished 12 and three. And I finished in the top four. 
But when at one point I was four and two and I was like, man, I think my deck sucks. Like, I kind of just want to drop. Like, this is kind of stupid. I, I just want to hang out with people. And then I was like, no, nah, I'll stick it out. Things changed very quickly from that point, I take it. No, it was like it was like the slow burn. Really, really. It never just clicked for you and you're like, oh, actually, my deck's awesome. It was just like sneaking by round after round. Like uh, on day two when I started, you know, well, I, I won all my rounds on day two, right? I, I had to 7-0 to go top eight after being 6-2. and two. And when I was like 4-0, I'm just like, okay, okay, you know, the deck is showing up. It's coming to play. I'm like hammering out what I'm supposed to be doing in each of these matchups. And obviously, like as that's happening, it's just like, oh, well, I kind of just wish I could change my deck at this point. But what can you do? Yeah, a little too late once you're already embroiled in the tournament. Also, it's insane that you're complaining about the composition of your deck that you just cruised to a top four with and, you know, basically locked up every single accolade you could possibly get this season. But yeah, I understand you still want to change your deck. I get it. It wasn't perfect. I believe it. I I know that happens, but I'm not going to feel bad for you. That's what I'm saying. I I think things went pretty well overall. They did. Absolutely. And uh, I lost to Mono Red Aggro on day one and Green White Tokens. And I guess this is why it was so disheartening, right? It was like, okay, so play against Mono Red Aggro and my, my opponent is good, you know, and I, I just kind of got beat up. It, it was just like, oh, the little creatures were not as weak to Sweltering Suns as I'd hoped. And like for Doomfall to catch their big stuff, you need the Sweltering Suns or like PNLR to like trade off the board and everything. And it just didn't really line up. And then eventually I just kind of like got burned out by like shocks and lightning strikes and unearthed Kenra's and stuff. And I'm just like, man, this, this plan is pretty bad. Uh, and then I played against green white tokens and I got the best draws I had all day and I just got smashed. Hmm. So do you think those matchups, I, I mean, did you play those matchups again throughout the day or were those your only encounters with those two archetypes? Oh, yeah, that was it. And then once I got to day two, it was like, all right, here's a Saltai deck, here's a Dino deck, and I just smushed everyone. Yep. Yeah, it seemed like the winner's metagame was very favorable to your list. Even the top eight, I mean, I could be way off base here. I haven't played any games with your deck, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But my interpretation was that you came prepared for the God Pharaoh's Gifts deck. You you had four braids in your main deck. Um, I assume you probably had a, a pretty clear plan against them. And we're ahead in that matchup. And the only really matchup I was super concerned about was the mono red matchup. Am I totally off base here or? No, you were right. I, once I got to top eight, I actually thought I was going to win the tournament. Yeah, I did too. I mean, I, I thought you kind of had to maybe fade the mono red deck, which seemed like a tough matchup. I think, you, you know, you have a lot of guys that don't block very well, although you were loaded up on either Sphere Harvesters too. So you certainly had ways to play that matchup. Yep. Um, but that was my concern point, if there was anything in the top eight. Yeah, uh, so Matt DiMaggio was the other person playing Red Black in the top eight, and his list was not the same as mine, like no Inventor's Apprentices, uh, going a little bit, uh, not bigger, I guess. I mean, he's he's got like six four drops, uh, no Chandra's, Earthshaker, Fanatical Firebrand, so like a little bit more of the mono-red stuff, I guess. His, his list was like closer to Magic Online than my, mine was, right? But right. we sat down for the, the top eight, like, you know, fill out your paperwork stuff, and he was like, hey, man, just want to say a big fan of the podcast. And he said, like, some really kind words and everything. And that was really awesome. Nice, was like, nice. Oh, man. Like, this is super cool that, like, this this person who listens to the podcast is now on top eight of this GP and is, like, you know, kind of thanking us for helping him get there. And he's also just, like, playing a similar deck to me. It was like, well, his, his list is also, like, a little bit lower to the ground than mine. So, like, he might be a threat, too. But, 
like the Sultai stuff, the blue red God Pharaoh's gift stacks, like whatever. You know, I, I, I felt like I was a pretty big favorite, but I don't know. Maybe like, I don't think I was playing very well all weekend either. Like there were some rounds where I think I did really well. And then there were some where I was just like, man, I'm, I'm playing like garbage. I just want to go home. Can you point to anything that maybe led you to not play at your optimal level? Was it just too much distraction being a hometown GP, too much other stuff on your mind, or you know, just some weeks you don't have it? No, lack of practice, probably. Yeah, not enough reps with the deck ahead of time. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that was it. I mean, I, I think my list was pretty good. Like the numbers look kind of random, you know, like one Glory Bringer, one Phoenix, two Hazaret is it, it doesn't look like science, right? But Given where the deck started, I think I ended up with the correct numbers because I wanted to draw different amounts of my big threats and I didn't want more than one threat that costs five. Mm-hmm. But I think but I think having one five in your deck is fine to draw, right? It's it's those situations where you're sitting on like three land and have two glory bringers. Yeah. Like those are the spots where you're just like, oh, I can never come back from this. But at least if, as long as you have like one five that you can play towards, then... Uh, I think that's good. And then I added an extra Chandra. So I had three Chandra's main deck, which is not a card I have main decked a lot in the standard format, but it seemed very, very well positioned against uh, the various green decks and the God Pharaoh's gift decks. And Chandra was just pretty phenomenal for me all day. Right. It seems like a really good meta call here. I think you kind of nailed this tournament. Again, at least the winner's meta game. I could see things going poorly on day one for this deck. But once you navigated that field, it it seems like you were in a very good position throughout the day. You mentioned that you weren't pleased with the deck by the end of the day and and had changes in mind. Do you just want to kind of run through some of the things you discovered as you were playing? Yeah. So the mana base was completely fine. There there are things that you could do, like maybe you're supposed to cut the Deadlands. Uh, The Deadlands did enable, like I used the Deadlands exactly one time in the entire tournament where I tried to put counters on a Bristling Hydra that had a Cartouche of Ambition on it and uh, fully expected my opponent to use their shield to, you know, keep their clock and, like, their life gain engine and things. And then I had, like, a, a fatal push to try and kill it, but they had the blossoming defense, which I also thought was going to happen. So it was like it was one of those games where it's like, okay, I used the Deadlands when I was already pretty dead. Right. You know, maybe it's just completely useless, and maybe it should just be another Swamp, which would help with the Dragon Skull Summits. But it is another Desert to Sack to sa- Scavenger Grounds, too. But... Overall, I think the mana base is good. Like, you you have the right amount of colors. The deck isn't dipping into black all that much. It's possible you could do something like cut a Spire of Industry for another Scavenger Grounds to have a little bit more game against the Blue-Red God Pharaoh's gift decks. Right. And then I could see a couple Magma Sprays main deck. Depending on how things shake out with, like, Rekindling Phoenix Hazaret, Glorybringer Chandra, like, how well positioned those are in the format. Like, you can, you can swap those numbers around, you know? But... Again, as I said last weekend, beat down deck with extra toughness to be better against walking ballista. Like this deck definitely, it gave me what exactly what I wanted, you know? And then I was able to like full transform into a more controlling deck against green decks, which basically just meant like they couldn't beat me like ever. It was right. Great. Right. Doomfall, Argyle's Bloodfast, that kind of plan was enough to handle their, their fatties. Yeah. I only got to cast Bloodfast once in the entire tournament, but the night before... The tournament, I sent John Rolf my deck list, and his list was like a, a reasonable amount different than mine because he was just going off of Nathan Smith. And Nathan had like the Heart of Kirians and, you know, the, the stuff that he was playing on Magic Online, basically. Mm. And John was like, nope, screw it. Just copying Jerry 75. And he was just like, dude, Bloodfest is so good. Like, you're a genius. Just every round, he kept saying that. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, 
I know the card is good, and I'm pretty sure it, it's going to do what I want it to do. I just ended up not playing those matchups. Just and can't draw it when you do play them. Yeah. yeah. So the the blood fast was also a nice touch because you do need some sort of card advantagey thing when you're like trying to grind people out with spot removal spells, you know. So Chandra is typically you know where where these decks get that from, but like I could see something like Vance's blasting cannons even. Like, you, you need something other than just four Chandra's, I think, because they have a bunch of Vraska's Contempts and everything. How was Unlicensed Disintegration on the day? It was fine. Yeah. I think having a thing that killed bigger stuff and also dealt them some chip damage was good. I don't think that I would necessarily want four. Uh, they seemed a little clunky, which is why I cut them down to three. The third Harvester could probably go from the main deck, and that could be where you get one of the Magma Sprays from. So... I, I would be fine with having some removal that kills some smaller stuff, but having at least two disintegrations to kill bigger things seems worth it to me. It is clunky, though. It definitely is. It does strike me as a little clunky, but, you know, the card's unquestionably powerful. I'm sure there are times where it felt fantastic. I ask because, you know, one of the things that has been bouncing around my head a lot is what's going to happen when Dominaria arrives. And I think this general shell is going to be the best home for Karn. The thing is, it's kind of like you're very incentivized to play Heart of Kieran at that point, I think, because he is a Planeswalker that interacts really well with Heart of Kieran. But then you kind of want Toolcraft Exemplar and the mana can't support that. So I'm trying to figure out exactly what colors we need to be going forward to make our Karn-based vehicles decks work. And I'm trying to figure out what spells are completely indispensable. You know, if, you're, if your Splash for Black can get really small, where it's just now the Scrap Heap Scrounger, and you're actually like a red-white deck. I don't know. There's a lot of exciting things to, to consider, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the best deck week one. Just a very aggressive, consistent deck with a super powerful card in Karn. Well, the good thing about this deck is that other than your one drops, their removal is just pretty bad against you. Hmm. So I don't know that I necessarily want a two mana card that just dies to like Fatal Push. I mean, obviously you can work around that a little bit, get kind of tricksy, but there, with when testing the deck with Heart of Kieran, I just found that like it was way too easy for them to just like keep you off of Heart, just like you know keep killing your three mana creatures or kill your two power creature, and you only have a one power one. Like Heart was just bad. I just didn't like it. Okay, something interesting to consider going forward. I mean, you, you can see though where adding Karn to the deck certainly will change that a little bit, both in the fact that he's probably creating creatures that can crew very consistently. And with the high loyalty, being able to use the alternate crew cost of Heart of Kieran as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think Karn is great, I think, especially right. in this deck. Right. But it, it also strikes me that like, well, this this Karn Heart of Kieran deck might just be uh, at least slightly different, maybe way different than what I'm going for. You know, it's like, sure. again, again the, the plan is a lot of toughness, good against removal, have some like grindy elements and good removal for my opponent. This again, this deck delivered that, but like once you start adding like Karn and Heart of Kieran to the mix, it's like, well, how do those cards fit into the strategy, you know? Hmm. Interesting. It'll be interesting to consider. I mean, I don't have answers to those questions for sure right now. Um, I do know, though, I'm going to explore a lot of Karn builds that will have this general shell around them the Walking Ballista, Bulmat Courier, Scrap Heap Scrounger vehicle type thing, be it Aethersir Harvester or Heart of Kieran. Yeah, and Karn is very good, and the format is going to change, right? Like, this exact strategy is not necessarily going to be necessary, you know? Right. It's like right. the, the exact composition of the format is definitely going to change. Like, Dominaria is just full of hits. Yes, it is. Non-stop hits. They just keep coming. I know. So, 
this deck was very, very good for this weekend. Certainly appeared to be. Wh- what about the blue red God Pharaoh's gift deck? What's your takeaway on that deck? Is, is that the correct version of God Pharaoh's to play? Was the metagame just unprepared for it going into this tournament? What do you think happened here? Uh, people didn't respect it for sure. I mean, there there was still some some sort of like latent memory of like a braid isn't a main deck card. Like you don't need it to kill artifacts because there are no artifacts. But I mean, we, we talked about this, like blue, white God Pharaoh's gift was on the rise. Like even they were playing walking ballista and stuff. Like it seemed like blue, white gift and a host of other decks were going to show up trying to beat Sultai because Sultai just seemed like the undisputed best deck in the format, even though it was kind of low key, you know, it wasn't like, cause you like, you don't see the, the metagame percentages on magic online anymore, but it's like, right. If you, if you are in the queues, you play against it a lot, yep. right? So yep. you can kind of figure out what the metagame looks like just by doing your own work. So it's like, okay, Sultai is going to be huge, and you need a deck that that can beat it. Thing, yeah, things like Blue-White Godfarer's Gifts I thought were going to get a lot more popular, which is another reason why I like this deck, is like you get to play four braids, and that's exactly where you want to be, and that's why I wanted to like dirty up the mana base a little bit and play the Scavenger Grounds. I think Rolf just played a mountain instead of that and a swamp instead of the Deadlands. And that was like the only differences he made. But yeah, I, I wanted to be ready for everything. And as it turned out, like blue red God Pharaoh's gift was actually what people should have played. Yeah. Like it, it kind of does what blue white does where you're kind of weak to the same sort of hate, but like the blue red deck is just a beatdown deck. And like you have, you have a much better backup plan. Right. Like, right. You actually have like a very good shot against, you know, red aggressive decks. Whereas like blue white really, really struggles. And I do think that I just accidentally like hit the level three deck where like I was good against Sultai and the decks that people were playing to be good against Sultai. And then, you know, I lost to one of them, but like, right. My, my draws kind of sucked. And I think I could have used an extra card or two for the matchup. Like I should have been a little bit more prepared. But you're exactly right. You didn't, you didn't plan this tournament trying to address blue, red God Pharaoh's gift. That was not, I, I, I highly doubt that was one of the things in your checkbox going in. Like you thought about certainly God Pharaoh's gift as a whole, but if I right. had to guess, you were slanted more towards the blue-white versions. Oh, yeah, for sure. For yep. sure. And, you know, that's that's a mistake on my part. I, I never actually played with the blue-red decks. So it was it's really difficult to see just from looking at a deck list, like, how powerful they are. But, I mean, it, it basically crushed the tournament. Right. I had seen them a bunch in the queues kind of leading up to this event. And I was always winning. So I just rode off the deck. And maybe that was just, you know, by virtue of my archetype choices and... You know, the fact that for whatever reason, I randomly kept lining up well against them. And I also didn't respect the deck enough. Uh, it definitely way outperformed my expectations this weekend. Yeah, I mean, after playing against them, it kind of felt like they were doing what I wanted to be doing, but a little bit better, except I had deck edge against them. Yeah, it's a, so level, it's like, th- okay. a level three deck. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's cool. I, I do feel like maybe if uh, knowing what I know now and not you know, seeing the future, like I would probably just play the blue red gift deck also, but knowing that like three of them were going to be in top eight, like I would, I happily would have played just the exact same deck, you know? Right. But I think, I think I would have had an easier road to the top eight if I had played blue red, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think we're coming to the nadir of this standard format. I mean, what's your takeaway? Was this a successful standard? This feels like the first good standard in a while, right? We've suffered through some really bad ones. This was a good rotating standard though. Dude, it was like, oh man, Grixis and Mono Red. And then it was like, oh, a bunch of like blue black mid-range. Okay, well, like, here's blue black control. And then Sultai started popping up. And then 
God Pharaoh's gift made a resurgence, and now there's like these these red decks finally got tuned. Like this deck, this format changed every week. It did. It there did. were new, there were new decks. All the decks did different stuff, and like in in the background, there's like red green monsters, and then that evolved into red green dinosaurs. Like this format was sweet. Yeah. I I could definitely see. I, I I would be fine playing this format again. You know, but eh, Dominaria. Who cares? Yeah, like, there'll, there'll be other sweet <laughs> things to do. I agree in general. I do think this format was sweet. I got a little sick of the God, uh, excuse me, the Scarab God sub game by the end of the format. But as you see, things rotated to the point where the Scarab God sub Scarab game God sucks. not present. It was just not present in this tournament, uh, at least in the top eight. So uh, a crazy, a crazy turn of events, really interesting stuff. And it's good to have our standard back. Like it feels like this is what standard is supposed to be. Dude, people kept saying like, oh man, the Scarab God, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, have you ever just like killed it? Like, have you cast struggle on that thing? Have you disintegrated it? Have Have you just like tried going under them? You know, yeah, going long. It's it's just the best card. But every week I would see like an Owen article, like adding more four and five drops to his deck and more lands, and it's just like, dude, that that is not where the format is going to be. You know, mm-hmm. go wide, go underneath. Yeah, I told Corey Bomeister on Wednesday night, maybe like we we went out to dinner, just a group of us. And I was like, I don't know what you're playing. It's either Saltire or Blue Black, and those decks are horrendous choices for this weekend. He's just like, ha ha, whatever, man. And then, you know, sure enough, look at this top eight. It's just like eight decks that crush both of those decks. Right, right. Uh, aside from the one Saltire person who's stuck in, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I mean, I guess if this was the last tournament for this standard format, it's a fitting close. Things have come all the way around with with new decks rising to prominence in the very last week of the format. Really great thing to see. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I want there to be more tournaments. Like, I want to play with this blue red God Pharaoh's gift deck. I want to be like, okay, cut the Viziers. Uh, one of my opponents had Glintness Crane, which seemed kind of sweet. Yeah, I like that. I don't a lot. know. I, I don't know how good these trophy mages are, but like, also you could like sideboard Hazaret. Like, you can do a bunch of cool stuff to actually like combat uh, your opponent's hate, you know? And I, I would like to play with this deck. If it makes you feel any better, I think there's a good chance this deck is not going anywhere and you may still get your chance. And it's even adding some Ooh. some cool new pieces as well. So, Dude, good news, good news. Have we looked, have we done like a God Pharaoh's gift check? Well, there's, there's a new God Pharaoh's gift that you get to play, which people should be very excited about. It, it may require some restructuring of the mana and may even you know lead the deck to take on whole new colors it's a very exciting card in tishar which i think will be returning things from the graveyard and providing b plans for these decks for a long time going forward oh yeah yeah you love this card it's so good it's so good i can't wait to play with it i like it too uh four mana two two is a little sketchy but I don't know, like cards like this, I always want to play with Ocatcher's Monument, but I'm not sure how well that works with Historics. Yoel Larson had an amazing looking uh, Ocatcher's Monument deck that included this card. I, I really liked a lot of the synergies he was pushing. It looked like it could grind for days. So if you haven't seen his list, definitely check that out. Um, maybe that'll give you a little bit of inspiration. But I, I know a lot of my deck builds are going to start with this card when we uh, finally get to go to Dominaria. Okay. I like that. I mean, I have to write an article tonight, so I might just, uh, you know, steal <laughs> steal all these ideas. That's fine. Listen, I just want these ideas to be figured out. I don't need I don't need them to be mine. I don't need to be the one who comes up with it. I just think the card's exciting, and I want to see what we as a collective can do with it. So steal away. What is this four mox amber crap? Get out of here. 
You don't believe in Mox Amber. I don't believe in four. Okay. I, I don't know Fours. which. I don't know what list you're looking at. I think there's maybe some theoretical lists that can get by with that, but it remains to be seen. Like okay, so so here's the thing, right? Mox Opal, you play four of because you want it early and often and. Typically, a deck that you're playing doesn't really care about drawing redundant copies, right? Like you have Arcbound Ravager, or you just use it as a Lotus Petal, or you sack it to Crook Clan Ironworks and whatever. Right. In standard, there is not as big of a push for you to have like three mana on turn two after your Ovia Pashiri. It is okay if you draw a Mox on turn four. You do not necessarily need to just, like, accelerate as hard and as fast as possible. Also, like, drawing multiple Mox Ambers, I guess, in theory, could help you uh, if you want to use it as a Lotus Petal. But generally, like, standard, like, you're not looking for that sort of effect, right? Well, I I would argue it totally depends on the texture of your deck. Like, if you're able to exploit kind of a late game that can recycle Mox Ambers and, you know, you're filtering them through Tishar to get stuff back or... You know, there's a lot of cool combos with Mox Amber that exist, so it kind of depends. I will say that Tashar with Mox Amber might be the one reason to play four because it's it's an unearth. So if you are playing four Bird Clerics and four Mox Ambers, okay, but then I don't think you should be playing like white green crappy creatures. Right, right. white green value is is not the setup for that. I, I get that. I, I see what you're saying. My point is there there probably does exist decks which require or benefit from four Mox Ambers, I think your point is maybe that shouldn't be the starting point for every deck that's trying to play Mox Amber. Yeah. I was thinking like a two of in some of the decks, Yol's looks like a three of. Interesting. Yeah. Those numbers will be interesting to suss out. I I think that card is going to be a difficult one to build around and evaluate. So I I really want to see where Mox Amber ends up. Meanwhile, there are things like three Legions landing where it's just like, what the hell? I can't speak to his deck list. I, d- I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I don't understand the token decks or any of these decks that are like, oh, I kind of want Allegiance Landing sometimes. It's like, I'm pretty sure you want it all the time. Yeah, you, you don't function unless you have Allegiance Landing in most spots. So just play four. Well, you function, but like your deck goes into overdrive when you have it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get an additional ramp out of the deal. Anytime you have a spare mana, you get extra value that, that allows you to like build up a bigger battlefield presence and like alpha strike. If you're playing Legion's Landing, you have Chef at Dune. So like every single token you have matters, you know, it's just, come on. Yeah. Come on. Get to four. I could see what you're saying. That seems like a good ad as a baseline in the green, white token deck. Certainly any, I haven't done a lot with green, white tokens, but any vampires list I had always four copies. Always. Thank you. Well, we're kind of we're kind of in Dominaria talk now, so we could. Yeah, how did we get there? This was this was not on our agenda for this week. So, Dude, so you, we... you just you had to bring up to Char, like and then it's so exciting. I can't stop thinking about Dominaria. Well, let's go. I mean, I, okay. So the goal with this podcast is to help you pick a deck for Hartford. Yes, we have to do that. We can't skip that part of the podcast. That's that's the important part right now. So how long do you think that's going to take? We have we have that much Two or three and... days at least because right, I'm okay. nowhere near the conclusion of this journey. Uh, no, I, I we'll try and keep it to you know the the typical show length, but it's tough. There's a lot of options on the table for me right now. There's a lot of things I want to explore, and one of the questions I get asked a lot over in our game podcast discord is about time management because as the 
the resident job holder of the cast, not to say you don't, you don't have a career and a, a job you work very hard at, but I have the traditional job. I am gainfully employed, uh, sir. I, I know. I'm, I'm not disputing that. That was not my intention with that statement. I am no longer a blight on society like I, like I once was. Agreed. Agreed. And, and I know you know that. I'm just, I like saying those words. No, you should. You should, you should feel good <laughs> that you're gainfully employed. But I have the traditional job. So people often come to me and ask, you know, how do you manage your time when you have a tournament coming up? And the answer is usually, you know, I do what I can. I, I look to maximize here and there. But I've been crunched this week and I've had a, a really busy week at work. And I'm not going to get to explore all these sweet ideas I have bouncing around in my head right now. And it's. Cool. Then I'll, then- I can save you a whole lot of time and just tell you why they're bad. Great. That's, that sounds great. So why don't we start with my kind of first really interesting idea I, I think I have. And that would be in analyzing where things lie, I think wrath of God, not necessarily the card wrath of God, but that effect is really powerful right now. Agreed. The problem is that a lot of the times by turn four, <laughs> you've fallen into such a huge hole against these either hollow one decks or humans decks that wrath of God is too late. Also, there's just not a lot of decks that play wrath of God in general. It's, it's decks like Jeskai control, which I really don't have a lot of faith in standing up to humans and uh, hollow one. So, so there's not a good spot for these wraths to rest in. And I started thinking, well, what if there was a deck that could kind of profitably play wrath on turn three and in addition, close the game very quickly after that. And that brought me to, ad nauseum because ad nauseum has access to pentad prism to accelerate its mana basically there's one or two utility spots in ad nauseum and everything else is kind of find your combo pieces so cards like phyrexian unlife can buy you time to go find a wrath of god Um, like i said you're accelerating to play it on turn three you can switch away from the spoils of the vault engine that these decks have been using recently and move back to peer through depths, which could also find your wrath of God in earlier turns and ensure you have access to it reliably. And then you just wrath and you're able to close the game within one or two turns after that. So tell me why this idea is bad. So I think this is going to be a common trend with us where we both have the same sort of idea and then we just tackle it completely differently. So I also agree that wrath of God is great I wish that something like Anger of the Gods was good enough. It is definitely good enough against humans, but kind of falls short in a lot of spots against Hollow One because of Hollow One and also Gourmet Angler. So yeah, Wrath of God is very good, but then it's like, okay, you run into like the Thalia problem, right? Where Mm -hmm. you're trying to rely on this expensive card. And I kind of hate it in Ad Nauseum because Ad Nauseum shouldn't care. Like, you should just have Angel's Grace and Phyrexian on life and just like fog them instead of actually using Wrath of God. Like, why are you using a four mana card to do something that a cheaper card could? Especially if you're a combo kill deck, timely reinforcements probably buys you just more time. Yeah, I guess the argument I would make is that there's cards like Meddling Mage that will do a very effective job of closing off your avenues to comboing, you know, can name Angel's Grace and you kind of have to deal with board presence. What does that kind of point to? Well, maybe you shouldn't be playing combo decks like this. While I talk off Storm and say it would be kind of crazy to play Storm right now, I'm now advocating for playing Ad Nauseam, which has some of the same vulnerabilities. Right. So, you know, maybe going down the rabbit hole and finding ways to fix those vulnerabilities is not the right approach, and you should just be looking towards something else. If you are going to buy into the premise that 
wrath of God is good. You're right. That kind of your escape shift approach that you talked about last week, being able to cast, you know, ramp spell, ramp spell, bring to light, get your wrath of God looks pretty good. It's the same thing. It does it on turn three, and then you're able to combo kill one or two turns later. So yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right where we kind of wanted to get to the same, the same problem, just very different ways. Yeah. So Scapeshift actually cares about removing creatures and has the capability of doing it because they're already playing things like Lightning Bolt and you'll have access to Cryptic Command and stuff to take care of meddling mages and everything. So Mm. Wrath actually fits into the game plan, whereas with Ad Nauseam, unless you're specifically looking for something to remove a meddling mage, I think that there's just any number of cards that you could turn to that are not Wrath of God, you know? And again, you noted that Wrath of God has some issues. It's a little bit slow, but like timely reinforcements really isn't and is quite good. So uh, I am definitely in the camp that Wrath of God is good. I think that as a, a related note, timely reinforcements is very good. However, timely reinforcements needs you to be building up to something. Like timely reinforcements itself does not deal with what's on board, right? I mean, if they're playing like goblins or something, then yeah, maybe you get to just like four for one them and and everything is fine. But most of the time you're going to be like chump blocking, trying to buy time to do something bigger and better. So I like the idea of playing like removal or just ways to slow your opponent down and a combo finish. So that generally means playing a blue deck. Ad nauseum I think is fine, but I would look at scapeshift. One thing I started looking at last night was just the various through the breach decks. Cause it was like, well, Scapeshift is good, but how how bad is it against Hollow One? I'm not exactly sure. Like these are these are things that I need to figure out. And Affinity and Burn are not great matchups. I know that from previous experience, just because they're like a little bit fast. So like, is there something either with like a lower mana curve, not as much air, because like Scapeshift spends a lot of its mana just ramping into more mana. Mm-hmm. Like, can you just have like more cantrips, more cheap removal, and then just like through the breach Emrakul them and Thinking about it, I don't think that plan really works because I'm not sure how many people that actually kills. Right. It's not game ending against too much of the format right now. Yeah, because like Affinity is going to be at 20. Hollow One is maybe going to be at 17 or something. Yeah, they can they can go to like 16 if they play carefully. And they're certainly going to have more permanence. It's not like you Emrakul someone and then they're just at nothing. Like... Best case scenario for you is like you actually do get all their permanents and then they just play a land and like get a blood gas or two back and you're like, okay, well, now we need to find a bolt to finish them off. And right. that's just that's it's too much of an ask, right? So ultimately I think scapeshift is where I, I would want to be. Uh at least like if we're going down this rabbit hole. And timely reinforcements kind of falls into that too. Okay. I was looking I was looking at like Nahiri and stuff too. I was like, oh, can we like kick it old school? You know? But I feel like that loses out too much to like Mantis Rider and Flame Week Phoenix and stuff. So yeah, too many haste creatures. You know, Bloodgast as well. A lot of recursive haste creatures right now makes me a little hesitant to go that route. So I'm interested in Scapeshift. I don't know. Again, being time limited this week, it's something that you did a good job of talking me into last week, and I would have invested some time this week had I had it. Unfortunately, time's tight. So. While I may not have time to explore ideas that are kind of fresh in my head, I do have a bank of experience to draw from. And as people who are participating in the Game Podcast Discord know, my most recent experiences were with Karn and playing Tron. So I've spent some time thinking about Tron this week as well. And, you know... How do you fix it? Yeah, so how do you fix it is the question. 
I am trying to figure out how to do that with new colors. I think the default builds are mono green right now. And that's because of Field of Ruin. People want to have, you know, max basics to be able to get Field of Ruin. They don't want to mess around with their mana base. What has kind of popped up a little bit on Magic Online recently are green, green red versions that are playing Kozilek's Return, as well as a second copy of Worldbreaker to get the back end of Kozilek's Return, the little bit larger Wrath, uh, and then usually one other red removal spell, be it Fire Spout or Lightning Bolt. I kind of hate this idea. I don't think that the red damage base wraths are going to catch you up quickly enough. I think humans are often going to grow out of range of the front side of Kozilek's return and you'll be dead before you hit the backside. You know, the fire spouts are are cute, but ultimately probably not effective enough is, is where I stand on that right now. I will try to get some games in with it. I don't know if I'll be able to, but where that then pushed me is to white. And while I dislike path to exile I, do, I don't think like relying on your mana rocks to get your white sources in the early game is fruitful i think you really need to maximize your green sources and focus on on getting to tron so i would still play dismember but i think there's some interesting white sideboard cards and the one that caught my attention was ghostly prison how do you feel about ghostly prison into things like humans and hollow one timely reinforcements is better you think it's just better than ghostly prison yeah i think so i mean the longer the game goes on, I think you get more value from Ghostly Prison, sort of, because like it gets worse and worse, right? Yes. Say Timely Reinforcements fogs like four attacks from a big thing. I think that is worth it, especially if, since it has the flexibility to block multiple things. And like you said, with humans, like they can just grow one thing to be really large, and Hollow One kind of can do the same thing, where they just make a Gurmag Angler and just like, all right, whatever, I'll just hit you for five every turn. Like, is that actually going to slow them down enough? I guess the the Gurmag Angler problem is real. The rest of the stuff, like they kind of need to spend their mana to make their, what's the one drop called? Adept, Flame Wake Adept. They need to spend mana to make that large. Kind of similarly with Phoenixes when they're buying them back. Yeah, they're just like, okay, whatever. I don't care about the Phoenixes anymore. I want to hit you for five and then get to four mana so I can hit you for nine or ten. And Human says access to to Aether Vial. So it's like they can develop and make Champion of the Parish large and like not even really have to invest any mana into it. They also have Noble Hierarchy. And just ride Champion. Okay, so then saying that's the case, what do you think about timely reinforcements in that slot? I'm down. Is that an effective fog? Uh, I think so, yeah. I, I think timely reinforcements is awesome. Just straight up, I've always thought it was awesome and I've always thought it was very, very underutilized. Like, you know, there's some part of me where it's like, oh man, like, is this a pet card or whatever? But like, every time I play with it, it just pays me. It pays me every time. It is so good. And then other people are just like, oh, it's only a burn card or whatever. It's like, no, I was I was using this thing against Jund. I would happily use it against humans, would happily use it against Hollow One. Like, I do think it is just like legit perfect right now. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I will certainly try out some copies of Timely Reinforcements in a Tron sideboard. There's a couple of other white cards. Main, which- main deck them. Uh, uh, don't play dismember just play, just like play two timely more. reinforcements yes so okay check this out this this tron deck that i'm looking at first place at a iq in columbia has 2k return one fire spout three o stone two yes. Ugin, on, only one ballista right yeah. play like three timelies more ballistas and also i'm like very very skeptical about like is karn even good right now I'm sorry about your, you know, car memes. Did you say, I know. Say that. I honestly want to walk away from this podcast right now. I am outraged. 
Oh, so so that's game. That's game. That's it. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Look, I think that while Karn has some weaknesses against the most played decks, which I will certainly cop to, the as we talked about last week, the format's still incredibly broad. So it yeah, doesn't it doesn't course. do a huge service to really focus in. So I guess that's where I come back to timely reinforcements over dismember. While a lot of matchups, I totally get it. There are some other matchups where I'm concerned about making that change. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Storm. Not that you're winning a lot of game ones against Storm anyway, but you're you're really shutting yourself off at this point. But if you if you think about Red's evolution, they're playing Rampaging for Asadon now, if you believe that that version of the Red deck is real. So Timely Reinforcements does not line up well in that case. You'd, you'd ha- rather have Dismember kill the Rampaging Ferocidon and be able to make a block with your Worm Coil. If they get to keep a fe- Ferocidon on the board the entire game, I think you probably can't win. It's almost impossible. I agree. I do think that deck is real. I don't think it's going to be very popular. No, anyway, that's true. That's true. As, as far as this green-red Tron deck that has K-Return and Fire Spout, dude, those aren't helping you against like the Sapphire Medallion creatures anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're They're... Those cards are not good enough at stopping those cards, and neither is timely. Like you could do another thing, which is like play main deck relic. Like Scapeshift can do that too. The uh, I think CJ Steele, the person who top aided the open last weekend, would bring the light Scapeshift. Had three relics main. I do have main deck relic. I, I wouldn't okay. play Tron without main deck relic. Cool. Another thing he did uh, going back to Scapeshift that I thought was awesome, and a reason why I started looking at the through the breach decks was they just cut all of his remands for Is it Charms. Yeah, is it Charm's an old favorite of mine? Uh, a card kind of like your feeling about timely reinforcements. That's how I often feel about is it Charm. And I've reached back into Legacy even to play some is it Charm's occasionally because I think the versatility is extremely, extremely underrated. I think is it Charm mostly sucks. But no, I think re- no, is it Charm's great. It does everything you want to do. Remand is horrible right now. Absolutely horrible. So you're playing it more by default than you actually believe in Is It Charm? No, no, no. So I, I, I think that Is It Charm is it's it's like taking the the spot of Remand where you need some sort of interaction against your your, your boy Karn. Mm-hmm. You need some sort of interaction against like Storm and stuff. But this is just in, instead of having Remand against humans in Hollow One, you have a card that can actually kill Meddling Mage and Thalia. Right, kill relevant creatures on board. And, you know, worst case scenario, it's like, yeah, it's it's a crappy looting to get towards your combo if, you know, nothing else is going on. So, sure, it's fine. I, I just think that all the modes together are pretty bad, but I think that the decks where remand is good actually are pretty good right now. They just need to get rid of their remands and play more things like timely reinforcements. And Is It Charm allows them to do that while also having enough removal to kill the creatures that matter and also have interaction against combo decks. So props to CJ because his his list is tight. Like I said, I'm coming around on the strategy. I'm kind of a believer. I just think I lack the time to explore it to its fullest at at this stage in the game. You don't need to explore it, man. It's scapeshift. No, there's, I mean, there's still like, look, I don't have a huge wealth of scapeshift games under my belt. I think that, am I able to pick it up and play it competently? Sure. Absolutely. I, I'm confident I could step into the tournament and put up a fine result. Am I going to play it optimally? Almost certainly not. This isn't Birthing Pod. This isn't Lantern. <laughs> this isn't Survival of the Fittest. This is Scapeshift. You, you are literally... count to seven or eight and end the game. No, it is use your mana every turn, ramp, remember how many mountains are left in your deck, and 
make sure that you know what you are capable of tutoring for at any given time. And there aren't a lot of like fancy tutor options. Main deck has Damnation, Hunting Wilds, Obstinate Baloth if you want to consider that. And then the sideboard just like has Crumble of Dust, Shatterstorm, you know, stuff like that. So it's like you you know what you're trying to bring to light for in any situation because there's only X amount of cards where X is a very low number. Well, your task is to get me an appropriate bring to light list, which I will carry with me to the GP and consider to its fullest and not disqualify it until, you know, I've done my due diligence and played a bit with it. If you literally copied CJ Steele's seventh place deck from the Modern Open last weekend and submitted it, I would not be upset with you. I think there are very, very small changes. Like there are two repeals in the main deck, which is whatever. Those could be anything. And then the sideboard has a back to nature, which I don't think you need, although Bogles was very popular at the open. And there's like a weirdo mix where he has like two anger of the gods, two sweltering sons. And it's like, okay, that's a lot of stuff. But like, obviously that helps against humans. Well, maybe you need a little bit more help against affinity. Like maybe you need a better hedge. So that's about it, man. Like his, his list, I'm telling you, is money. It is good. Okay. That's a ringing endorsement. So I'm trying to think if, if that covers my, my Tron concerns. Um, I, I think we've, we've talked through it. I think that timely reinforcements is something I can check out. I have medium feelings against the kind of green-black versions I previously played. I think the reason for playing green-black is collective brutality. Collective brutality is not the strongest possible option right now. I do think it's still good, but maybe not a reason enough to stretch into black at this time. Agreed. So that's kind of where things stand for me right now. I guess if I were to say what my likely GP Hartford deck would be, it would probably be either Green White Tron or Bring to Light Scapeshift. That's where I stand right now. Are you comfortable with either of those options or are you really pushing hard for the, the Bring to Light option? No, because if you play Tron, you're bad against like the other five best decks in the format. What are the wait, what are the other five best decks that I'd be bad against? Humans, Hollow One, Affinity, Storm, Burn. I don't, I don't think I'm bad against Affinity. I think the Tron matchup against Affinity is fine. You're crazy. Really? I feel like I've almost never lost to Affinity with Tron. Am I just running really well? Yeah, I think so. Really? It's, it's that pronounced. I mean, I've had like Gutshot in my sideboard a bunch of times, which is a very good card against <laughs> them. <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, it is basically O-Stone or Bust, and then even then you like run afoul of Ink Moth Nexus sometimes. But you have Walking Ballista, like pre-Walking Ballista, I get it, but they really have no answers to a, a post-O-Stone Walking Ballista. I don't know. I've had a ton of success in the matchup. It's really not one I fear, but maybe I'm just off base. All the Tron lists I see have like one Walking Ballista in them, which is crazy, but... Yeah, I, I have three in most of my lists. Regardless, say you register Tron, right? Yes. The, the thing that you don't want to sit down from or sit down across from is a person who's trying to kill you on turn three, which is what Affinity is trying to do. All of these decks are trying to kill you on turn three. Right. The entire format is at turn 3.5 right now. Yeah. So why would you register this deck where you're like, oh, well, maybe I can tune it to blah, 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 when you're just at a natural disadvantage? Like th this is like playing Sultai last week or Blue Black Midrange or whatever in the standard Grand Prix. It was like I, I straight up told Corey to his face that I knew his deck was bad. And I I'm telling you like the exact same thing. Like Tron is not where you want to be. So I guess my lesson from this is that when you don't have any time, you co-host a podcast podcast with Jerry, and he'll just let you know. It's really easy, actually. I recommend everyone co-host a podcast with Jerry and just lean on that for information. Look, in before Tron wins the Grand Prix, right? <laughs> Wrecked.
Because, uh, like, this is this is also very similar to the GP last weekend. It's like, oh, humans and Hollow One are the best decks. So people are going to play decks that beat those. The winner's metagame is going to consist of decks that beat those. Tron is probably going to beat those decks, right? But, like, I, I feel like Modern is a little bit more complicated than standard is and i feel like humans and hollow one are still going to do well at the grand prix it's not like they're just uh, like all gonna get crushed and like all gonna get hated out because it's just like that's not really possible these decks are a little bit too good like they are fast they're resilient they they're trying to kill on turn 3.5 as you as you mentioned or at least like set up a virtual kill like there's just no way that these decks are just like completely eliminated from day two right so for what it's worth there there was a modern open this past weekend in the top 32 of that open, four copies of Humans, zero copies of Hollow One in the top 32. So those are pretty pretty small metagame percentage. I guess the human percentage is, you know, it's, it's solid. There, there's a lot of humans for it to place that well. No Hollow One showed up. Um, and this is the week after we had our podcast and we declared everyone knows now Hollow One's a real deck. It's very good. And humans is top dog. The humans top dog thing played out. The hollow one part of the equation didn't. I can't tell you why. I, I'm not saying I have changed my mind. I still feel that way. I don't think people look at hollow one like it's a real deck. Not a lot of people can can just sit there and like cast burning inquiry, right? Like you got to be a little crazy. They're not willing to roll the dice all day. Yeah, I don't think so. Do you think there's a difference in the? the perception of you know an scg tour player versus who will be at the gp this weekend kind of a higher level of competition at least on the top end of things are are those players more apt to pick up hollow one i think good players are more likely to play hollow one yeah i mean i mean we talked about this before right where it was like uh retail played in the mocks and the sieve like all, all these people were picking up the deck and trying it at the very least yeah, it'll be interesting to see where things go. You know, like like you said, there is a potential world where things line up well for Tron. And as we talked about last week, you can create any narrative you want. I could I'm sure I could come up with a compelling narrative why why Tron's the correct case. And you've come up with a compelling narrative why Scapeshift is the correct decision. It'll be interesting to see where things fall. I, I don't have a definitive answer. Modern's, modern's so hard to come up with definitive answers for. It's just like that's kind of our job, and I feel like I'm copying out by saying that. But it's tough, man. Modern's the hardest format to read I've come across in a very long time. Well, I mean, you, you can't really just look at this top 32 and be like, oh, humans is there. Yeah. But like, there's no hollow one. Like, look at what is here. Like, there's a, a blue moon deck that is uh, Pester My Kiki Jiki. Uh, Living End got ninth. There was another one in the top 32 somewhere. There's a few like Marty Pyromancers, Blue Red Through the Breach, uh, Bogles. A decent amount of Eldrazi Tron, decent amount of Titan Shift. Like, Grixis Death Shadow? What the hell is Grixis Death Shadow good against now? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. nothing. Stubborn Denial is good against nothing. Yep. So why are you Grixis, right? And then, uh, also, as we noted, like, Jund is basically absent. Yep, one Jund deck. Jund is gone. Peace. There's also no Tron here, I should mention, too. Like, it would be unfair of me not to mention that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's legit. I, like... The blue decks that are here are the combo ones, like yeah. the the ones the ones that beat up on Tron, right? Like right. there are some Eldrazi Tron decks. No storm. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that, but this is a weird looking top eight in the context of everything else that's gone on. Especially when you go to Moto and you look at the results there, and the tournament on Moto was dominated by humans and Storm. So you know, figure out what's going on right now. It's almost impossible for me to say. One thing that's clear is that humans is very clearly 
at the top of the roost. And that's what I'm saying. doesn't matter what the metagame really looks like. Humans is going to do well. It'll it is just a, top. it is a good deck. Yes, it is. End of story. Yep. Affinity is getting like a little bit more popular in real life too. I guess one of the people is Eric Hawkins in this top 32 who just always plays it. So mm. maybe that doesn't count, but. Yeah, hard to say what you do with that when someone's just always locked in on the deck. But either way, you know, this is all small, small sample sizes. It's not giving us a definitive picture of the metagame. No, of course not. So we just have to do what we can with the information we that we have. So my theory is that, well, I'm going to look for coverage of this event and see how many hollow ones day two'd. Uh, four hollow ones compared to eight humans. And look at the different in conversion rates there. Very different story. Yeah, 50% versus zero. Yeah. Uh, one mono green Tron in day two, three Eldrazi Trons, no other Trons. Yeah, top of the top of the metagame, eight humans, eight burn, six hexproof. So like hexproof is a good matchup for Tron. Yes. Humans is a humans is a coin flip. Yes. You th- you think affinity is slightly in your favor, right? I do. But then, like, green-red LD, I imagine you're not going to say is in your favor. No, 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 no. No, very, very far in the other direction. For Jeskai, for Maru Pyromancer, those decks can either just, like, scoop to you or smash you, depending on how much they want to beat you. Yeah, I, I would I would say that the average build is in Tron's favor. Elves is very fast. I assume that they have a reasonable matchup against you. Probably. Counters Company, probably not good. Those matchups have always been tight when I've played them. I don't know that they're as awful as you would expect for being like a green-white value deck. But it, again, depends very much on how they build their deck. Yeah. Okay. And then Rix's Death Shadow, which is kind of a flip. Titan Shift, which you can't really beat. Uh, Eldrazi Tron. I actually don't know. I, I assume you beat them, but... Yeah, I've, I've only played it once or twice, and I don't think I've lost to it. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything. If I were playing Eldrazi Tron, I would play four Fielder Runes, but whatever. And then we got some green-red Eldrazi, some Jun, some Infects, Storm, Green-White Company, Breach, Merfolk, Bank Company. Yeah, I don't know. Like It's like a, a mix of decks that I think Tron is not very good against. Only having one Tron deck in Day 2 is like kind of crazy, though. Yeah, a little scary. Do you have any opinions on the green-red Eldrazi deck, which ultimately won the Modern Open? I think it's good. I mean, I, I think it is basically like a better jund i guess like if you're if you're trying to like play some big idiots and have some removal spells some way to interact with your opponent then i think that is basically what you want to be doing not playing like dark confidant i could get on board with that uh i I really like that like all the horrible things about ban eldrazi this just kind of fixes while still having those super explosive starts yeah and you have a ton of haste which i love yeah 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 uh, one thing to note, if you do start messing around with Green Red Eldrazi, the Moto list has two Nest Invaders over the Mind Stones, which I really like. I really like that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good change. I would certainly make that. Much cleaner hit off your Bloodbraid Elf. Nest Invader is just a card I love, too. I've played that in a lot of decks. I don't know why I've always had an affinity for that card. The The person who won doesn't even have Crumble the Dust in the sideboard. He says he does not fear the Tron. Nah, who cares? Just haste him out. No big deal. It might work. Does fear the burn, apparently, with a better skull and a Thrag Tusk, man. Yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff in those flex slots. You know, Thrag Tusk is just good against, like, Jun, too. Like, uh, any fair deck, you're pretty happy to see Thrag Tusk again. Yeah, um, mirror, mirror matches, too. Most Tron plans involve bringing in Thrag Tusk against, against fair decks, and you're always very happy to play it, so. Yeah, Green, green Red Eldrazi, I would not be upset if you registered. 
Okay. So I'm going to bring a huge box of cards with me and let the chips fall where they may, and we'll see what happens come come Saturday morning. Alternatively, you could just bring 90 cards that go into the escape shift. That'll be part of my huge box of cards, but <laughs> these guys are coming with me too. I'll bring my Eldrazi friends, my giant Eldrazi friends. They all get to come to the tournament. Everyone's coming out today. Okay, fair fair enough, fair enough. Well, we're we're at the hour point or so. Do you remember what com- what comes at this part of the show now? Do I need to remind you or are you going to get it this week? Well, well, I I was thinking of a couple options. We I could let you ramble about Tashar Ancestor's Apostle a little bit or we could just do our question of the week from the game podcast Patreon Discord. Yeah, let's let's save the Tashar talk for next week. You know, I'm super excited to talk about all these these Dom cards, but we're getting the full spoiler. We'll do our typical top ten show next week, and we can get into all this stuff. And we'll probably talk forever and and have a super long show. But but we'll save oh. it for this week. Oh God, how how different do you think our top ten list is going to be? Like, how many of the same cards do you think we're going to have? Like two, three? I I think we'll have five or six of the same cards. I think. Oh wow. We'll see. We'll see. It'll be interesting. This is this is a crazy set. There's so much out there. So it'll be a fun show to do for sure. Ooh. Okay. We need to we need to make stipulations though. So we can't do the dual lands. Okay. Right? That's just right. that's honorary mention like number 1 probably. Sure. Sure. And I like I really like a lot of the ETB tapped uncommon lands. So we should just leave lands off of it, right? Okay. No lands with the caveat that we both obviously like dual lands and I also believe some of the value lands are very good. Tight. All right. Question of the week, let's go. What do we got? So, for our question of the week, this question from Stoneheart. Uh, he wants to know, what is your internal dialogue to recover when you've just committed a serious blunder or lost in a way that seems unfair, unlikely, unearned? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, one of the words that is not mentioned here that frequently comes up in discussions like this is deserve. And I absolutely hate that word. I think no one deserves anything. Like, you you may have tested a lot you may have like the best deck and the best plans and you might be the best player in the room you don't deserve anything you still have to play the games you still have to realize that uh magic is a game with some inherent variance and all you can do is like you know prepare the best and try and make the best decisions that you can and hope that eventually enough nice things will happen you know that's why Kind of like setting specific goals, like oh, I really want to qualify this season, is just setting you se- setting yourself up for failure and for disappointment. And in, in these situations, it's like yeah, you know, sometimes you make mistakes, or sometimes you know they peel on you when you otherwise would have won. But like them peeling on you at the end isn't really any different from them being ahead the entire game, right? It's just like, at some point, you started celebrating that you were probably going to win. But if you are just like even keel the entire time and you don't necessarily let your emotions change, then you're not going to be affected by getting peeled out, you know? It's it's weird. It's like, it, it's, like a, it's like a constant state of mind thing while also understanding that you don't deserve anything. Yeah, I think that one of the big kind of evolutions in my mental game was when I began thinking and applying a poker concept to magic. And this is probably like an outdated concept at this point. I'm always amazed by how much poker has changed since I played it regularly. 
but I remember when the concept of range was first being discussed and, and not in, like everyone knew ranges, but it got more uh, in depth. And I think it was Tree Nguyen put out a book called Let There Be Range that really like dove very deeply into range. And I started applying that kind of thinking much more to magic. And the way range works is just like a group of possible outcomes, like what could be in their hand? What can they draw? What are my percentages in each outcome? How do I play to those outcomes? And if you're always presenting things in range, you never really feel like something unfair, unlikely, or unearned happened. Like that outcome was always in the possible outcomes. It may have been a very small percentage of those possible outcomes. You may have been able to play in a way to close down that percentage of outcomes that you didn't because another set of outcomes was more likely. But there's always like these really small turning points that where you could have either optimized things better or you just were like, okay, this is still the optimal play, even if I'm giving them this out because the vast percentage of the times this is going to go in my favor. You know, you're not closing down outs for yourself by saying, oh, if they have this, then I'll just lose on the spot. Really thinking in that manner kind of opens other doors and other possibilities. So once you're thinking about everything in the concept of range or where there's all these varying outcomes and really everything that can happen is on the table in your thought process, those feelings will go away. I, I don't know if I'm doing enough to explain the concept to actually let people move past this, but I will say just try and research range and and you know start thinking about things in terms of possible outcomes as opposed to one isolated event and then you'll see that all of these outcomes, you know, if it happened, obviously it was within the realm of possibility and it wasn't unfair, unlikely or unearned. It just might have been slightly less probable than other outcomes. That's all. Yeah. And I actually wrote an article titled Range. Oh, really? I, th I think I hit on some of this stuff. And I think that that article is pretty good. If I had to pick like top 20 articles that I've ever written, I think that would be among them. Or or at least like the concepts, you know, maybe maybe the words I put down are not that good, but... Uh, the concepts are there and it's very good. So uh, you can definitely check that out. It's old enough that it's not on premium anymore. And basically I realized that like everything I do in magic has to do with range. It's not yes. like oh, I sideboard exactly this way against this archetype. It's like, no, I leave myself some flexibility where if like they're a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more controlling, you know, like you give yourself a, a wider array of options and, how do you like prepare for a tournament? Well, I'm not going to like metagame against heavily just one deck or whatever. And yeah, certainly when you're like making play decisions and everything too, it's like you, or what can your opponent have in their hand? Like, yeah, you got to try and play against a range every time. But another big part of this question is like, oh, how do you, how do you recover? And the easiest way to recover is to not be there in the first place, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. Like, that would be my answer as well. How do you get off a tilt? Don't go on tilt in the first place. Yeah. The end. You know, it's, figure it's out. It's a huge simplification, right? That's the problem with it is that for someone who's achieved it, it's very easy to say, but it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And unfortunately, where you've kind of overcome that, it's really hard to give advice back to the other side. Yeah. I mean, the tilt or, you know, the the internal dialogue to recover after you've committed a serious blunder, like that sort of thing. It's just you you have to figure out what is causing those things to happen in the first place. In tilt, it is generally like, uh, maybe you made a mistake or maybe your opponent played awfully and still beat you. Maybe they were a jerk and they beat you. You know, there's like something that is setting you off emotionally. And the easiest way to deal with that sort of stuff is to just try to make it so you don't get tilted in the first place. And that is going to involve uh, some self-awareness. You know, we talked about that a lot of a couple weeks ago. And 
yeah, just, you know, sit down and actually think about like why you were upset. Why are you tilted? Is it because you put too high of expectations on this tournament or, you know, this week or is like your life kind of crappy and like you wanted this to make you feel better or did you feel like you are the best player in the room and you did deserve to win? Like no matter which of these reasons it is, like you need to be able to figure that out and then uh, decide whether or not you should try and actively change that stuff because yeah, again, the easiest way is to just not get to that mental spot in the first place. Right. And, you know, maybe the best advice I can kind of give here is if these are persistent problems that keep coming up for you and, and you're not really making progress in, in adjusting to tilt and and finding a way to recover, talk to a therapist about it. And I, I think that there's like a stigma that comes with talking to a therapist that I hate so much. A therapist is just a tool. And this is a, a mental issue that keeps coming up for you. Go talk to someone about it. See if they're able to kind of give you some exercises to do. You know, someone with more professional acumen than Jerry or I. Not to say that our advice doesn't have value because I think, you know, advice from all sources is useful if you're willing to apply it. But they might be able to present the information in a different way. And, you know, maybe you're able to push you through that tilt barrier that you've experienced for a long time if if our advice is unable to. Yep. And... Hey man, the, the Discord's always a, a good place to talk about this stuff. You know, maybe you shouldn't be asking us this, but just like bringing it up as general discussion points. Yeah, a great idea as well. I'm I'm definitely on board with that. Speaking of the Discord, we should probably talk some some Patreon stuff before we wrap up today, shouldn't we? Oh yeah, good idea, good idea. Okay, so uh, we hit a milestone last week. We got to our first like it's not it's not like a stretch goal, right? It's just a goal. Yeah, it's called a stretch goal on on the Patreon page, I think. But yeah, it, it was just a goal of ours, which you guys have now annihilated. Annihilated. And uh, we have more goals past that. So like continue to annihilate, please. We appreciate it. We have sleeves and deck boxes coming from the fine folks at Legion Supplies. They should be here in about a month or so. I ordered them a while ago, actually, because I was pretty sure that we were going to get there. So Good planning. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if we hit it and then it would take like six months for us to get them and then, I, you know, the villagers would just grow, grow restless. So we couldn't have that, right? Right. I didn't think there was any way we would hit the goal before they arrived, though. I kind of wasn't prepared for how ah. quickly things moved. Ha! Ah. Showed you. Yeah, first world problems. I, I guess that's fine. But, uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, for the support. We really are completely overwhelmed by everything you guys do to support the cast. It's incredibly humbling and I'm so appreciative for it. Yeah, absolutely. Same. And I'm, I'm very excited. You know, I, I can't wait to see these deck boxes and sleeves out in the wild too. I'm, I'm super pumped. Yeah. I, the first time I see the game podcast show up on camera, I think my head will explode. It'll be an absolutely <laughs> awesome experience. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta make like an LLC or something. <laughs> <laughs> just like probably a good idea you should talk to a lawyer about that can can you find a lawyer to talk to no if only i knew any good lawyers yeah uh, well you certainly don't i'll tell you that much all right that's game